This past week, I finished an uh, audiobook that was a memoir written by a woman who had uh, been born into a cult and grew up in it. Uh, she eventually escaped from that cult in her 20s, uh, but it was a bit of a horrific book. Uh, there were some funny moments, some touching moments, but for the most part, it was just a revolting book. Uh, I am not going to tell you the title of the book or the author um, because there's a couple of different reasons why I just can't recommend it. But as, as much as maybe there were some funny moments, it, it was primarily, primarily a story of abuse. And it, there was some of the abuse you would expect knowing that she was part of a cult, the, the emotional uh, abuse, um, the, the spiritual abuse. But part of why I can't recommend it is she goes into great detail in some of the sexual abuse that she endured. And the abuse started when she was four. And it was all done under the guise of love. And so there's no surprise for most of us listening to me to go, well, no wonder she left the cult. I mean, if I had been a part of something like that, yeah, I'd want to get out. But what we don't realize is like that's all she knew. This is what she'd been born into, and she is being taught this is what is normal, and yet her body's reacting, her mind is reacting, her emotions are reacting, and she's starting to slowly catch on. This isn't right. This isn't healthy. And in her 20s, when she finally was able to get to college, the cult really frowned upon education. So she was finally able to get to a place where she starts learning some things and is able to look back and and evaluate. About two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through the book, you see that the narrative start taking a shift. Instead of just telling a story, she starts sharing how she reflects upon her past and the things she's learning and where she's at now. But as she's working towards the close of the book, you get this sense like she's moving into wanting to inspire her readers. And, And she works to the very pinnacle. And the very last phrase, the last three words of her book are, I own me. Now, when you hear her story, you can see why she might come to a place. Because for so much of her life, she didn't seem to have control. She was told where to go, what to do, what to believe, who to be with. And, and like, it was just grotesque. And so you can see why she, in trying to have some sort of semblance of, of health, of, of autonomy, she would come to this place of saying, I own me. And, and because the author was the one reading the book... You could tell she fully believes that she was trying to inspire her readers. She wants them to hold to the same thing she does, that they too would come to this place of agreeing that I own me. And I could imagine that for many people, these words are so encouraging, so inspiring. Because if you've been in anything like her, emotionally manipulated, sexually abused, raped, not having control over your decisions, your body. You might want to find yourself at a place where you would say, I own me. Now, you're sensing I'm setting this up to try and topple it down, and you would be correct. But I don't topple it to scoff at it, to make fun of it, because I realize that the people for whom this means a lot to them it's usually because they've come through a lot of trauma. And that trauma, it matters. It's important. It's awful. It's evil. And it needs dealt with, and there needs to be healing. 
It's just that I don't think that I own me is the right way to go about finding that healing. Because what it is doing is it is basically shifting you from having one set of people controlling you to now something else controlling you. And what I am hoping today is that you will hear that you do not own you, that God owns you. Now, because of things like what this woman experienced in a cult, because of spiritual and religious abuse, for us to hear God owns you sounds like people like me in positions of authority are now trying to set it up to where now we can control you under the guise of God says. That's a lot of what she experienced. But hopefully what you'll see today in the scriptures is not only that God does own you, but that when you find your identity in that truth, it actually leads you to more freedom than you could ever imagine. And that's what I long for you. Because I don't want to see you being enslaved to anything of this world. I want you to find freedom in Christ. And I think that sort of freedom, that sort of joy, that sort of peace comes from having an understanding of the Imago Day. Last week, as we began the series, we saw that God created humans, male and female, he created them. And when he created them, he put his image, his likeness into them. And what we saw was that that image of God, the Imago Dei within them, is what separates them from the rest of creation. However, we saw it is also what makes humans so valuable. We asked the question, so just how valuable are humans? They were worth the life of Jesus. God the Son left his throne in heaven, left everything behind to come to this earth to take on human flesh. He lived a sinless life. The penalty of sin is death, so Jesus did not deserve to die, and yet he died on a cross in our place. We are the sinful ones. We are the ones who deserve the punishment for our sin, and yet he did it for us. He took our place. Why? Because you and I are of such incalculable worth to him. He, you are worth it all. That's how valuable humans are. But last week, I spent most of the time talking about this Imago Dei in others. Because I think if we are going to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, we need to see humans the way God sees them. And he sees them having great worth. And so if we see them as having that great worth, it changes the way we interact with them. We stop putting people on this hierarchy. We stop trying to put people lower than us to make ourselves feel better. We start realizing these are people who are loved. These are people we should serve. These are people who we can build bridges with, even when they're different than us. Well, this week, I, I want to take it now, and I want to come back to us. And I want to consider, all right, so the Imago Dei is what makes us valuable, but now what does it do in the way I see myself? And what I hope is that you will see that I do not own me, God owns me, and it can lead me to having the greatest freedom I ever thought possible. To see it, I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. If you are a first-time guest and did not bring a Bible, we are going to put the scripture on the screen so that you can read right along with us. However, if you have a Bible already on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. We are fine with digital Bibles here. Uh, we'd love to help train your thumb to open up your Bible app rather than just always open up that game or Pinterest or 
you know, LinkedIn. Does anyone use LinkedIn these days? I don't, I don't think so. Anyway, what we want is for you to, to get used to using your Bible. Also, if you want to go old school and have a paper Bible and do not own one, uh, you can stop at Walmart and get one. You can order one online, or you can just stop by our resource table if you're here in person, and you can uh, pick up a, a translation there. We've got two different ones, uh, and we'd love to find the one that will help you to understand this gospel message and grow in Jesus. So just ask me or, or one of our ushers afterwards, and we'll get you the uh, Bible translation that will help you uh, uh, grow in Christ. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 24. So as we get ready to turn to this important book, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we are about to come to uh, your timeless scriptures. Uh, we are coming into this uh, morning, this day, this time of listening with all sorts of biases, with all sorts of ideas. Uh, we've got um, different church backgrounds. We've got different political backgrounds. We, we have uh, uh, just different ages and, and demographics listening to this. And so, God, I do not pretend that I am able to speak this in such a way to convince every heart and mind. But, God, that's not my role. Only you can open eyes. Only you can touch hearts. And so, God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Uh, so, Lord, the, the weaknesses in me... I pray you would overcome those, the, the things that are, are, are good and strong and accurate, the things that are in line with who you are and with, with what you've put in your timeless scriptures, I pray that that's what we'd hear. And so Lord, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to you first and foremost, and help us to just be willing to take stock. Lord, is there anything in our lives to which we are putting our identity, to which we are enslaved that is not of you? So God, teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The uh, book of 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul had planted this church in the city of Corinth uh, many years prior to him writing this letter. But word had gotten to him that the church wasn't doing very well. In fact, the church was a mess. Part of the reason the church was a mess is because of the culture of the city around them. Uh, the city of Corinth was located on this isthmus in, in Greece. Uh, any foot traffic that was basically passing from the, the northern part of Greece down to the southern part, much of it passed through Corinth. Also, because of Isthmus, a lot of ships would come in there to the Gulf of uh, Corinth uh, or over there by Centria, and they would drop off the people and, and cargo because it was easier to get things in there. So what this meant is you brought, it, there was, it was like a crossroads of sort. So it brought a lot of people into this ancient city. Well, these people brought with them their ideas, their, their religions, their practices. And some of those things began to seep into this new church. Many of the people in the church in Corinth had been part of those other religions, part of those cults, and they had left some of those ideas and practices. But then some of those things are around them once again, and they start giving into those. Or because it seemed like the wisdom of the age, they just began to adopt it into their church. Paul hears of this and is just like, oh my goodness, no, 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 that's not healthy for you. That's not what God desires for you. And so he writes them this letter to try to bring them back to the life-changing gospel of Jesus. We studied the book of 1 Corinthians at Riverwood beginning in our very first year of existence. Uh, in the fall of 2014, we started in 1 Corinthians, and we made it all the way through chapter 13. So maybe someday we'll go back and get 14 through 16. Took us about a year and a half, but what I did was I broke it up into these like mini sermon series. Uh, so like chapter one, I think we called it friend request or something like that. Or um, Anyway, what I remember the most though is chapters five, six, and seven. Uh, we called the series Sex, Thugs, and Rock and Roll. 
Now, I thought it was a really clever title. Found it later. Some people didn't think it was all that great. Um, but the reason I named it that is because in chapter 6, there was a lot of conversation about sex. There was also conversations of, of these thugs, the, you know, the disagreement, the divisions that were happening within the church. But also it talked about healthy relationships of, of marriage and just within a church family. And so we studied these three chapters. Now, in three weeks, we're going to be in chapter 6 again. But today, I want to take you to chapter 7. I want to take you right to the middle of it. After this long conversation about sex and marriage, suddenly Paul makes this shift. And he shifts over to talking about um, circumcision and slavery. Now, it sounds like a big jump. How do you go from marriage to those topics? But what you'll see is there is a theme running through all of it, and you'll, be, you'll follow Paul's logic. All right. So if you have your Bible open, join me down there at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, the previous uh, uh, chapter, uh, verses, um, Paul was talking about marriage. And as he's talking about marriage, he has to address this idea that surprisingly still exists in our day and age. Uh, I, I think in our day and age, it's not as much as it used to be. But there's this idea that if you're married, you're better. Right? If you're single, you might feel the pressure from others. Like, so, do you got a boyfriend or girlfriend? When are you guys getting married? I'm just going to let you know if you're single, as soon as you get married, the next question is, when are you going to have kids? All right? It's always like people are trying to push you to the next thing. But there seems to be this underlying idea that if you're married, you're better. I, I don't know if that fully existed at that time, but I kind of suspect it did based on what Paul is talking about back in verses 1 through 16. And he basically starts saying, hey, if you found Jesus, if you understood the gospel while you were married, stay married. You don't need to get divorced in order to then fully devote yourself to God. Stay married, even if your spouse is not a follower of Jesus, because maybe they're going to understand the gospel because of the way you live within the home. So if you're married, stay married. But if you're single, you don't have to go get married. It's not like your standing with God improves. If you're single, it's fine. Stay single. Because as a single person, you can be fully devoted to God. You're not having to put yourself into the cares of this world. Neither's better. Both can glorify God. So if you're married, be married. If you're single, be single. And if somehow your station changes, that's okay. The point is, go to God. Neither is better. So that's the theme he's running with. So it's like, because that theme is in his head, he's like, oh, this theme will help them understand this conversation. And that's how he shifts then to circumcision. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never gotten into a debate with someone on whether or not there should be circumcision or not. It's just not something we talk about, right? And if you do not know what circumcision is, it's probably because you're under a certain age, and so talk to your mom and dad at home. <laughs> but circumcision is what God used with the ancient Jews as sort of a covenant marking. Back in the time of Abraham, God had these adult men be circumcised, this foreskin cut off, Sounds absolutely horrible and awful. But if you think about it, what a way to remind people you belong to God. 
Because every time a guy needs to go to the bathroom or he's with his wife, there's the reminder. Well, it became so important, it became such a part of the identity of the Jews that if someone were to convert to Judaism, if they were male, they were expected to be circumcised. Well, when Jesus comes along, dies on the cross, and now this gospel starts spreading, there were many people who believed that because Jesus was this Jewish Messiah, it meant you were now converting to Judaism, and to convert to Judaism, you must be circumcised. But what Paul starts realizing is, no, that is now a work. Our salvation is found only in the work of Jesus. It is not through anything you and I do. Now, we do things to honor God. We do things because of what Jesus has done for us. But we do not do them in order to become saved. That all happens through Jesus. And so he's saying, guys, if you were circumcised at the time you found Jesus, don't try to undo it. It's it's fine. It's no big deal. But if you're uncircumcised, that's fine too. You don't have to do this. Your standing with God is not better simply because of some extra skin or not. So just like with marriage, it's not better to be married, better to be single. Same with circumcision. It's not better to be circumcised or better to be uncircumcised. Your standing is the same before God. That's why you see him say there in uh, verse 20, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So, however you came to Christ, that's fine. You can stay there. Now, do not abuse that verse. In other words, if you in a drunken stupor suddenly realize the depravity of your sin, the love of God, you give your life to Christ, it does not mean you now need to stay perpetually drunk. Right? If you are suddenly convicted of your sin because you're cheating on your spouse, and that's the moment you understand the gospel, it does not mean you continue to stay unfaithful to your spouse. No, this is not a call to continue to sin, to call to continue to in, in harming yourself. No, this is a call to give yourself fully to Jesus. But if that means you, you met Jesus while married, awesome, great, stay married. Glorify God in your marriage. If you met him while you were single, awesome, great. Glorify God in your singleness. Same with circumcision. But now he makes another shift. He carries the same exact theme, but he takes it over to the topic of slavery. Now it starts to get even more uncomfortable. I don't know about you. I was uncomfortable talking about circumcision, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But now we're getting to slavery. There are people who completely reject the Bible because they say the Bible condones slavery. And they can go and find the verses that seem to support their stance. So, hey, slavery... Evil, awful, the Bible condones it. No way. Done with the Bible. Well, today you're going to see that not only does the Bible not condone slavery, in fact, the verses we're about to see actually would topple the entire concept of slavery. And it comes down to the Imago Dei. Look there at verse 21. Were you a bond servant? Uh, By the way, I'm using the uh, English Standard Version today. Uh, When they first put this out, I think like in 2001, they used to have the word slave there. In their 2016 update, they changed it from slave to bond servant. Uh, The Greek word is doulos. Uh, It it can be used for a servant or a slave. Most of the slavery back in biblical times was more of a willing slavery, all right? Now, it's not that people like, oh, hey, this will be fun. It it was usually to pay off a debt. You, You had these outstanding debts, so you would go and work it off. It's just that rather than receive the salary for yourself to go and buy food and that, your salary is in a sense going to your master who's providing you the food and the housing. Once you've worked off your debt, you would then go free. 
Right? It was not like the chattel slavery that we know of within uh, America and, and the embarrassing history that we have. So it, 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 uh, it was a, a bit different. All right? There were some people who loved their master so much that they wanted to be their slave. In fact, there's this whole little ceremony that would take place. You'd, draw, you'd, you'd stab this all through the ear. They'd get an earring to say, I belong to this master because I love him. I want to serve him. I'm going to make him thrive. Right? So some of them were these bond servants. Right? So even though some of this is willing, it's still slavery. Right? So if your translation has slave or bond servant, it's the same. I just want you to realize that. All right. So were you a bond servant, a slave, when called? In other words, when you met Jesus, were you in slavery? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he, meaning God, I mean the, the person who's the slave, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Some people, they look at this, and they're like, all right, Paul is clearly supporting the concept of slavery, right? You, you look there at verse 21. Were you a, a slave when called? Ah, no big deal. Don't worry about it. As if like, ah, just stay there. But again, if you've heard me preach more than once or twice, you've probably heard me talk about the importance of keeping things in context, right? You can't just rip out the first part of verse 21. You've got to look at the second part of verse 21. He goes on and says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So clearly he's not pro-slavery. He's saying, hey, if you have the opportunity to get out of slavery, take it, do it. But then some people say, well, he's contradicting himself. First he says, hey, if you're a slave, no big deal. Oh, but if you're, if you're in slavery, get out. Which is it? Well, I think the answer is found over in verse 23. In 23, he writes, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Back in the Old Testament, there was a prophet by the name of Hosea. Uh, Hosea has a very interesting story, and you can read about it in the book that carries his name. Much of the book of Hosea is like many of the other minor prophets in the Old Testament. There's a lot of uh, pronunciations from God to the, to the people of the day. But weaved within these different prophecies is this story. In chapter 1, God tells Hosea to go and take a wife. Her name is Gomer. Now, that's a very unfortunate name for a girl. I just couldn't imagine having a baby and going, oh, Gomer, that'd be a great name. But more unfortunate than her name was her profession. She was a prostitute. In, in our day and age, prostitution has been slowly losing some of the stigma that's been around it. Uh, they're often just called sex workers. And in some corners of our culture and corners of the world, it's, it's held up as a very legitimate uh, uh, lifestyle, uh, a career. But you have to remember, Hosea is living back in ancient Judaism. And there, prostitutes were about the bottom of society. And so the only people who were friends with prostitutes were other prostitutes. Like, not even the men who were coming to them for service actually respected them and liked them. So for Hosea to go and be married to a prostitute, like, this is humiliating. I mean, here he is, a prophet of God. And that's his wife? Well, because he's a faithful man, he marries her, and they have three kids together. 
They have two boys and a girl. And if you want to read their names, they're very, 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 very sad, unfortunate names. Read Hosea chapter 1. But then in chapter 3, something very interesting happens. God tells Hosea to go and get his wife. This is Hosea 3, 1 and 2. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. I want you to realize, we don't know why Gomer left, but she has. We don't know if she's gone back to prostitution. That kind of seems to be the, the, the case. But maybe she's just gone to live with another man. Maybe it was just too much raising three kids, especially with such bad names. So she goes and lives with this other guy. Or maybe she's somehow gotten trapped up into sex slavery and she's being put on some sort of like auctioning block. We don't know exactly why. All we know is God says, go get your wife. But to go get her, we see he has to buy her. It says that he pays off some shekels of silver, and then he gives a couple of these things of barley. I, I, I forgot to bring the amount, but it, it's basically an entire harvest. I mean, it was an abundance of barley. It probably was every and anything he could get his hands on. It was so much. And yet this is his wife. Why would a man have to go and purchase his own wife? She should already belonged to him. God is wanting to show through Hosea the love of God because the people of Israel of his day were chasing after other gods. They were being spiritual adulterers and he wanted them to realize that God was still faithful. He still loved them and they could see that visibly through Hosea because in his day and age, no guy would even want to marry a prostitute in the first place, but especially take back someone who left you and went back to that lifestyle. But God, in his infinite wisdom, also inside of this, embeds the gospel. Because this story was more than just God's love for Israel. This is God's story for all of humanity. Because inside the gospel, we see God created humans in his image. Humans walked away, rebelled against him, were spiritual adulterers, and yet God loved them so much, he came. But he didn't just purchase them with some barley, he purchased them with his life. That is what Paul is getting at there in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. He said, again, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. I think deep down within Paul's mindset is this idea of this gospel, of the imago Dei, that God has created humans, put his image in them, and so therefore, not only do they have tremendous value, but it's like a brand, just like a, a cattle rancher brands his animals so that everyone, when they, they see the cow, realize that belongs to that guy. God put his brand upon you to say, that one is mine. Now, sin came in and tried to scratch it all out. Sin came in and stole us away from God. But God can recognize his brand. He knows we are his. And because he loves us so much, he does what Hosea does. He comes and he pays an exorbitant cost. Now, 
Because God's image is on us, that right there shows that we belong to him. That is why we say the second phrase there in verse 23. Paul says, do not become bondservants of men. He does not support slavery because the only person we should be in submission to, be in slavery to, is God. But to Paul, that isn't even an argument enough. He goes on to say, but you've also been purchased. Jesus Christ came and purchased you. So do you realize what that means? You are doubly God's. He's created you and he's purchased you. He put his image in you and he has redeemed you. You are doubly his. And that helps us understand a couple of things. First, it helps us understand why Paul said to the slaves, hey, if you were in slavery, don't worry about it. Because in the eyes of God, they're no longer slaves. Because in the eyes of God, they are free. In fact, look at it there in verse 23, uh, 22. He says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. So even if you were in slavery, when you understood the gospel, you gave your life to Christ, to God, it doesn't matter that you're a slave. You're free in his eyesight. At Galatians 5.1, Paul writes that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. God is not trying to get you to, to convert into Christianity so that he can throw all these rules on top of you. He's inviting you into a relationship with him because he knows it's there. You will find your true freedom. That's what he desires for you. So it doesn't matter if you're a slave on this earth. Now, because you belong to God and you shouldn't belong to any men, if you have the opportunity to get out of slavery, avail yourself. Do it. Get out. But if you can't, you're not a lower class citizen in the eyes of God. But then notice he says there in verse 23 to the freedmen, he says, likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Saying, when you give your life to Jesus, you're saying, God, you're in control. Your image is upon me. I belong to you and I will do whatever you call me to because I trust you. I know you. I love you because I see your love for me. So that is what Paul is getting at. Saying that the Imago Dei should pour us over into God, that we find our identity in him. He explains this a little bit further over in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, 26 through 28, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. By the way, ladies, don't be uh, thrown off there in verse 26 when it says you are all sons of God. Your translation might have children of God in that. That's fine. But what you need to realize is that right before Paul writes these words, he talks about Abraham. And, and then right after it, he talks about Abraham again. In Abraham's day, when, when the patriarch of the family passed away, it was the sons who inherited. Now, we can say, you know, that's not fair. That's not right. But that's what it was. Paul is saying that you all, there's no longer male or female in Christ, so you're all sons, meaning you will all inherit from God. You receive his blessing, his goodness, his presence. All that is his now is yours. And that's why he then goes on to say, and in the eyes of God, there's no more status. There's no Jew or, or, or Greek. 
or, or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. There's no one better. There's no marriage and, and singleness. There, there's no more circumcision and uncircumcision. All those categories are erased and thrown away because the important thing is you were made by God and you were purchased by God. And so you should find your identity in God. And that therefore means you are not your own. You were bought with a price. But let's be honest. Deep down inside, there is still a part of us that wants to say, I own me. Because if we own ourselves, it means we can eat what we want, drink what we want, watch what we want, say what we want, listen to what we want, sleep with who we want. It means we can do whatever we want. You've ever heard the phrase, you know, where there's a will, there's a way? Well, when your mantra is, I own me, it means I have my will, so I want my way. But God is saying, no, I own you. I created you, and if you are a follower of Jesus, I have purchased you. You are mine. But rather than to try to put you in some sort of like suppressive slavery under him, it's actually to free you. Because what happens is when you give yourself into these other things, I own me so I can do this, you're actually entering into a different type of slavery. And that is what God wants to free you from. Last week, uh, as we kicked the series off, I said that uh, each week I would try to bring to you different, um, I guess, applications, uh, different ways that you could live this out, different ideas. And so last week, as we talked about the value of the Imago Day, I invited Corey Chamberlain from All In Mentoring to come. And so she presented to you guys the opportunity to get involved in the local school system and once a week for 30 minutes, just spend time with a kid, grades K through four, and just give them 30 minutes. What a better way to just let a kid know you have value, you matter, than to just sit and play a game with them, right? Well, this week, I don't have anyone to come and invite you into something. This week, what I have for you is a question. I, I want you to just honestly and seriously consider this. Of what or who am I a slave? You see, we don't live in a community where I'm worried about you and your, your status. I, 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 right now, I, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking to 100% free people. Now, you must realize that in America, there is still slavery. It's just that unlike back in Civil War times, it's not legal. And so it's all underground and hidden. But there are actually studies saying that there are actually more slaves nowadays than there were back in the late 1800s when slavery was still allowed. It's just all hidden. It, it, it's absolutely awful and horrible. Slavery is happening all around the world. That's why I'm passionate about things like uh, International Justice Mission as they work to combat slavery in all corners of the world. So you may be saying, but I'm not a slave of anything. Well, actually though, you and I are. Because if we're not finding our identity first and foremost in the Imago Dei, the chances are we have allowed something else to become our identity and that thing has then become our master. You see, for some of you, your job is your master. You are enslaved to your, your career. Some of you, you are enslaved to an addiction. Might be a substance, might be pornography. You, you just seem to have all of your time consumed by this thing. It seems to dictate your life. Some of you, it's food. Some of you, maybe it's certain relationships. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's social media. 
Maybe it's the news. It, it could be anything. Some of them are good. They're fine. But when good things become ultimate things, now it's a bad thing. And what's happened is you've become enslaved to that. It's consuming your time. It's directing your thoughts. It's telling you how to live your life. And you're trapped. And God wants you freed from that. But to find your freedom, it means you're going to have to have the shift in your thinking, a shift in your identity. Because you see, the reason you become enslaved to your job is that your job title has become the, the, the way you see yourself. And so when you introduce yourself to people, that's like the first thing in your, your mind. Some of you, you're trapped in an addiction because your identity is in that event that happened in your past. And you can't get away from it. You keep returning to it in your thoughts and your minds. So to find relief, you keep getting, giving into this addiction. Some of you, your identity is inside of politics. The, the most important thing to you is that, that R or that D or maybe an L for some of you. you know, like, that's what's most important to you. That's how you filter the world. And so now you're trapped in that. You've become enslaved to it. God wants you freed from it. Because if you're trapped in that, you can't go and live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. Because your identity is not that of the Imago Dei. And so I need to encourage you, ask yourself honestly, of what am I a slave? And if anything begins to come to mind, ask God to help. Now, as I said, it's going to take transformed thinking. Romans 12, verse 2, tells us that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. So for many people, it's, it's understanding the scriptures. What has God already given us? Reading this, letting this transform your mind. Some of you, you, you need to get yourself into relationships where people are going to help you. We live in a loud culture, you guys. Our culture is constantly speaking to us through commercials, through TikTok, through YouTube, through the water cooler, at the lunch table. I mean, it is constant. And so we need some people who can help us hear what God might be saying to us. And so you got to get yourself into a growth group or an accountability partner, like someone that you meet with right before work or maybe on your lunch break. Maybe there's another believer at your job, maybe right there at school. And you two can get together and just pray for one another so that your identity doesn't get trapped up in these things and you become enslaved to it. You can help each other be out and then live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. But ultimately... You can read the Bible a ton. You can put yourself around all the right people. But if it's not you wanting this, then all of that other stuff's just going to be exterior. And so that is where it, it comes down to you and your heart. And so that's why the best thing I'd tell you to do is to pray. It's to submit yourself. It's just to make Christ the center of your life. Because as you start realizing the Imago Dei in you means you belong to God. And Christ went to the cross to purchase you even though sin tried to steal you away. You belong to him. And when you find your, your identity there, that's when you discover that freedom that the scriptures talk about, the joy, the peace that we all long for. And suddenly you're not going to be trapped by your job. You're not going to want those addictions the same way. You're going to be able to handle that relationship a little healthier. All because you find your identity in Christ. And it comes from realizing you belong to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, speak to us now as we move into this uh, time of reflection, uh, this time of prayer, this time of communion. I, I pray that you would uh, just minister to us. Uh, Lord, I've said a lot of words, uh, but honestly, it, 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 it uh, doesn't matter what I have said.
What matters is what you want for us. So God, I pray that you would um, help your people here to seek you, to humble themselves before you, for them to realize that you have brought everything to them. You've made them, you, you've purchased them. So God, I pray that they would just find their fullness in, in Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone that might be here or is joining us online that has not surrendered themselves to you, that today would be their day, the day when you, you help them to see that you are real, that you did send your son Jesus, that Jesus, you lived a perfect life, but you went and died in the sinner's place, and that today they would give their life to you and begin to have that Imago Day Christ-centered identity being formed. But God, we also confess that we so often don't trust you. We act like Adam and Eve who in the garden thought you were withholding something good from them. And so they tried to eat of that fruit because they tried to live the, the I own me mantra. And yet it led them to slavery of sin. It led them to a broken relationship with you. But God, you love humans so much. You came for us. And you invite us into this relationship. So God, just as you invite us to you, we come before you. We pray that you would work through this, this next few moments. That we would confess, surrender, and you would continue the process of helping us to see who we are in Christ and that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.